It's November 21st. I'm Brian Dean Wright, former CIA operations officer, and this is The Wright Report. Hey, good day to you, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to The Right Report, your daily news podcast. I am still a little bit hoarse today, but I've got four briefs for you this morning that are shaping America and the world. First up, the mayor of New York City has a new solution to his migrant crisis. Ask the rich to pay for it. Those details coming up. Second, a separate fight in New York City this morning, which at the surface is about racism, but I'm going to explain why this fight is all about our kids and our nation. Third, an update for you on the White House's deal with China about fentanyl. Now, some people will say that this update is full of good news, but I'm skeptical, and I'll explain why. Fourth, the Pentagon made a subtle change to how it describes its support for Ukraine, and that might signal a new foreign policy. I'll tell you what it is and what it means for you. Later, a listener question today about former President Donald Trump and his plan to sign a new trade deal with the Taliban. All right, but first, let's get to our top stories of the morning. The mayor of New York City has a new solution to his billion-dollar migrant crisis. Ask billionaires to pay for it. Last Friday, Democrat Mayor Eric Adams offered up that creative solution to his fellow New Yorkers as his city faces a $12 billion expense to take care of the tens of thousands of illegal migrants who now call the Big Apple home. Mayor Adams asked the billionaires into his city, and the millionaires too, to donate more of their money to the various nonprofits and foundations that take care of all the migrants. He also asked them to use their networks in Washington, D.C. to demand that those politicians there give New York City more money and aid. As the mayor said, quote, it's an all-hands-on-deck moment, end quote. This call for billionaire cash comes just days after the mayor announced some pretty dramatic cuts to various city services. And those cuts include things like, first, reducing the overall police force to 29,000 cops. That is the lowest since the 1990s. Second, he's proposing to cut back the New York Fire Department as well. About 1,000 firefighters are currently on disability, and they would be either fired or forced into early retirement. Third, the mayor is talking about cutting the number of trash cans in his city and picking those things up less often. That probably sounds disgusting and smelly. Anyway, the cuts go on and on. Things like fewer after-school programs, cuts to museums, less housing support, and so forth. Although I should tell you, unfortunately for New Yorkers, these cuts still will not be enough. The New York Post relayed last week that all these budget cuts will not address the deficit in any real way. Billions more in cuts will still be needed. And because of that, some of the city's politicians are demanding that the mayor, well, he increase revenues as well. Yes, taxes by taxing all those billionaires and millionaires. They want Mr. Adams to increase the city income tax. That currently ranges from 4 to 10%. Of course, that is in addition to the New York state and federal income taxes. For what it's worth, also, New York City is not the only sanctuary city this morning with some pretty serious financial problems. Chicago recently passed an extra budget of $150 million for illegal migrant care, even though the city said that they need closer to $500 million. But the mayor didn't ask for this bigger amount, all because his office said he was afraid of backlash from voters. So he's breaking the demand for all these migrant cash requirements into smaller chunks over the course of a year. Perhaps people won't notice, apparently, is the logic. 
Finally, Denver is in a financial pickle this morning because of the migrant crisis, too. Illegals are costing residents of that city around $2 million a week. And that is leading Mayor Johnson of Denver to say that, quote, we need to think of a different solution, end quote. Now, he didn't offer one except for suggesting that Washington, D.C. should really send him more money. So those are the latest facts and data about the migrant crisis, ladies and gentlemen, in Denver, Chicago and New York City. Let me offer you one piece of analysis and opinion on how we might solve their budget woes, putting aside the standard solutions of either a stronger border preventing the problem or repealing those sanctuary city policies that turn out to be a magnet. All right. So here's the idea. And let's start with this interesting fact. Residents of the United States are sending a record amount of money from the U.S. to Mexico and throughout Latin America. So this is often called remittances. And we are talking about some serious cash, a record $155 billion just this year, with about $56 billion of that going to Mexico. Now, in the past, some U.S. politicians have proposed taxing those billions in remittances for different reasons. For instance, Republicans Ron DeSantis and Donald Trump both currently want to use a tax on remittances to pay for more border security. But perhaps a remittance tax could be used to pay for migrant services as well, which logically kind of seems fair, right? Those remittances are often from illegal labor, and that goes untaxed because it usually is paid under the table. So maybe we slap on a remittance tax to pay for the migrant or civil services that a lot of these folks are enjoying, but not fully paying for. Now, to be fair, there is a counterpoint to this idea, and here it is. The average remittance is about $400 a month, and it is mostly going to poor people in poor nations. So the counter argument goes, let the poor people use all of it instead of taking, say, 20 or 50 of it in a tax. But I think that counter argument could probably be used by many of us to justify why we should not have to pay taxes. At any rate, something to think about this morning as Chicago, Denver, and New York City consider how to pay for their big dollar deficits. Perhaps a remittance tax might be a part of their big dollar solution. More to come. Second up this morning, let's stay in New York City, shall we, for another political fight. But this one is between Democrats that, as you're about to see, is more than just some political mud fight. It's about what happens to our kids at the end of the day and our nation. So here's the news. It involves a man named Hakeem Jeffries. He is a U.S. representative that was picked to be the replacement for Nancy Pelosi. She was uh, picked just after she stepped down as the House Democrat leader not too long ago. Well, over the weekend, Mr. Jeffries attacked some of his fellow Democrats who are affiliated with the leftist group that is called the Democratic Socialist of America, or DSA. So he attacked these folks because he claimed they targeted him first with a racist ad involving watermelons. Now, Mr. Jeffries, who is black, took great offense to that because he said that the fruit has been used as a trope against him and his community. Well, the socialist then fired back at him, saying that the ad and the watermelon were actually about Mr. Jeffries' support for Israel and that the fruit has a long-standing history with the Palestinian people, which is true, actually. For folks unaware, the Israelis have banned the Palestinian flag in decades gone by, and in response, the people in the Gaza Strip and the West Bank used the watermelon instead as their symbol. Uh, that's because it's got the colors of red and green and black that matches the flag of the Palestinian people. But no matter, that is the food fight for you this morning out of New York City. And that's actually the essence of the dust-up between these Democrats this morning. 
And you might be wondering, really? That's it? Why should I care about this little squabble amongst these Democrats? Well, let me make the case for you. And let's start with some history. About 10 years ago, the leader of this socialist group, the DSA, the Democratic Socialists of America, they published a manifesto and it explained who they are and how they would gain power in America. And it's pretty remarkable in how honest they are. For instance, they promised to abolish capitalism. They promised to have the government take over all essential businesses. They said that uh, wealth in this country would be seized and ultimately it would be controlled by the state. Also, they said that if you want to go to any kind of advanced schooling or training, say to be a doctor, a lawyer, even a carpenter or welder, you're going to have to sit in front of a panel of socialists who would decide whether or not you could go. And that is because they said they have to consider equity and equitable outcomes for kids. In other words, this is all very classic Soviet stuff, Marxism. But as the manifesto said, America's socialists knew that they had a problem. And here it is in their words. Quote, socialism is no longer a pure, innocent ideal. It has been tarnished by the authoritarian regimes that have ruled in its name. End quote. Yes. So with that ugly history of murderous socialist regimes all around the world, these DSA folks said that they had to rebrand themselves. And what better way to do that, they said, than by offering people free stuff like free housing, free health care and guaranteed jobs if you want to work. They also said that they would uh, attract minority Americans by advancing something that we now call diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives. One last thing that's very important to talk about. In this manifesto, they said that they could not run for office as socialists because of that bloody history of of their ideology. Instead, they're going to have to take over the Democrat Party. And once they could do that, they would turn America into a Marxist state. Indeed, here are their words about that. Quote, forming a socialist party is pointless if you will join it. Our work runs through the Democrat Party, not around it. End quote. Well, since that manifesto was published back in 2012, they have taken these plans and they've executed them. For example, they got the uh, DSA socialist that most of us know as Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez or AOC, She registered as a Democrat and she won her race in New York City. And now she is in D.C. advancing socialist causes. But as the manifesto said, she and other socialists are going to have to target and remove what we might call the other or traditional or real Democrats like Hakeem Jeffries. So that is the historical background to this news and this fight out of New York City. Let's go back to this original question. Why should we care? Well, I would encourage us to remember yesterday's brief where I spoke of this stark reality. Polls show that more and more young people are drifting further and further into radical ideologies, especially leftist ideologies like socialism. And they're getting this information on platforms like TikTok, but also universities. Indeed, it is often said that these schools are just chocked full of socialists or radical leftist professors. Well, here's some proof. The writers of this DSA manifesto They include two senior organizers. One is a guy named Joseph Schwartz. He is a professor at Temple University. The other is a guy named Jason Schulman. He too is a professor at various schools, including Lehman College. In fact, ladies and gentlemen, if you go to DSAUSA.org, you are going to see their senior staff, their board, their lead organizers. They all have repeated connections to or employment with all sorts of U.S. universities and colleges all around this country.
In other words, my friends, when we spoke yesterday of the mind virus that is spreading amongst America's young people, well, here's part of the answer. The DSA and their manifesto are saying quite clearly who they are and how they plan to take over this country. And if I could summarize, it is one university, one student, and one Democrat politician at a time. So more to come on this, including, by the way, why would the Democrat Party ever allow these fake people like AOC to run as one of them? Seems kind of like we should talk about that, and we will. But for now, let's just settle with this. The fight in New York City this morning between Mr. Jeffries and these socialists, it's not just standard mudslinging. It's really about a fight for the future, for our children and our nation. With that, let's take our first break of the morning. For subscribers listening at rightreport.substack.com, thank you. Meanwhile, for my other loyal listeners, an equal thanks, and we'll be right back. Well, the world is just awful lately, isn't it? And sometimes it makes you just want to crawl into bed and scream into your mattress to make it all go away. Well, if you do, just make sure that your mattress is made by GhostBed. Seriously, folks, GhostBed makes the finest mattresses on the market today with craftsmanship and high-quality materials that you can feel as you fall asleep. And I would know. I have their Lux model, and I bought it because I sleep hot, and that thing helps keep me cool all night long for a great night's sleep. Now, people have asked, how does this technology work to cool you? I don't know. Magic? Maybe little elves in there somewhere with ice cubes? Probably. But it doesn't matter. Their mattresses, ladies and gentlemen, are top-notch. And if you don't believe me, that's okay. They have a 101-day trial period plus free shipping and returns, so you can try it out in the comfort of your own home. So go to ghostbed.com backslash right. That's W-R-I-G-H-T. And you can explore all of their incredible models. And right now, they are giving my listeners 40% off their GhostBed purchases. But you got to use that code right. Again, go to ghostbed.com backslash right. W-R-I-G-H-T. And get yourself the good night's sleep that you deserve. Welcome back to The Right Report. Let's continue with our news this morning with a pivot towards international developments. We start with an update from last week about China. As listeners will recall, the Biden White House got Beijing to agree to a deal where China would reduce the sale of chemicals that are used in fentanyl production. And that's good because the allegation has long been that China knows precisely which of their companies are making and shipping these chemicals, which first go to Mexican cartels and then onward they go to America. And of course, once they get here, those drugs, including fentanyl, are killing around 100,000 people each year. Now, China has long denied that this is happening. They've said that none of their drug companies are involved. Plus, they say the drug crisis is actually America's problem to solve, not theirs. Well, we are getting some new details about the talks in California last week and the promise about this drug deal. No pun intended. So here's what we know. When Mr. Biden and his team sat down with China's President Xi last week, the Chinese delegation came to them with a surprising gift. They had the names of 25 Chinese pharmaceutical companies that she said were known to be involved in the fentanyl trade. And as she said, he'd already shut them down days before coming to California. And that's certainly good news. But it undermines his long-term position that she, in fact, has held for years that there were no Chinese companies involved in this stuff. Or if there was maybe an isolated case, he couldn't control it. So there's that. 
Also, since last week, China has sent out warnings to pharmaceutical companies around that nation, reminding them the production of certain chemicals, all related to fentanyl, were either prohibited or under very strict government control. And Beijing said that if any of these producers ever violated Chinese law regarding these chemicals and their production, they would face fines or jail time. And again, that is certainly good. But again, it tends to undermine Xi's position held for years that the problem doesn't exist or he can't control it. In other words, folks, over the past week, China has confirmed that it very much knows the source of America's fentanyl supply and has allowed it to flourish on purpose. Now, the reasons for that, by the way, we tackled those back on a brief I gave you November 15th was the date, just in case you missed it. But to refresh our memories, it involved corruption, cash and Chinese mafias. So those are the latest facts and data this morning about this update regarding China's commitment to working with the Biden White House on fentanyl. Let me pivot now to offer my quick analysis and opinion on this. So what I will tell you folks is that for years now, the U.S. intelligence community and various federal agencies have known that China was very much aware of exactly which companies were complicit in this fentanyl drug trade. And of course, they allowed it to happen. Now, incredibly, during my time of service, there were some Chinese apologists who said, well, that probably isn't true or couldn't be proven. But now, well, we sort of have the proof. She arrived in San Francisco with a list of 25 companies that he and his regime had clearly been tracking for years. And I suspect that that is because some communist officials were probably taking some mafia bribes from at least some of them. Again, we discussed that last week. And that takes us to this. My friends, we cannot trust the Chinese government when they say much of anything at all. They will lie. They will cheat. And they will steal their way to achieve whatever goals they might have. And that is obvious, or it should be. And if the United States had good leadership, my goodness, our global diplomacy would reflect this. It does not, sadly. But here's the good news. So this latest list of companies, combined with the intel that we already have on this fentanyl trade, that could create a very good targeting package for any future operators from my old shop or others to blow up or kill or otherwise sink these companies and their employees. So that's a victory here, a victory that, just to underline, we are only going to have when we have a president in the White House who truly wants to solve this problem. More to come. With that, we pivot to our last piece of news of the morning. The Pentagon made a small tweak yesterday in how they expressed their support for Ukraine. And that might signal a major foreign policy change with huge implications for taxpayers like you. So here's what we know. U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin was in Kiev yesterday meeting with a variety of folks, including Vladimir Zelensky. And he tweeted this next statement out after his meeting. And I want you to see if you can spot the subtle change. So here it is. Quote, the United States will continue to stand with Ukraine in their fight for freedom against Russia's aggression, both now and into the future, end quote. So it's very subtle. But did you notice the last three words into the future? And that's different. See, for over two years now, the White House and the Pentagon and others in the Biden White House, they have instead said that they would stand with Ukraine for as long as it takes but Secretary Austin just delivered a softer version of that, saying into the future, not for as long as it takes. And that is a small but important difference, one that could impact you, my friends. And here's what I mean. 
Polls continue to show that there is decreasing support amongst Americans like you for providing Ukraine any more military or economic aid. And that is causing all kinds of political problems for Mr. Biden and his reelection effort. Yes, he is asking Congress for $61 billion for Ukraine, right as he's asking for your vote when you don't want him to give Ukraine any more. All right, so that's interesting. It is also possible that the White House is realizing other two key developments out of Ukraine. The first, Ukraine continues to be a deeply corrupt country. As in fact, we just saw yesterday when President Zelensky fired first his chief medical officer and second, his top cyber defense official, both for uh, reasons that include corruption. Second, we also know this. Ukraine's progress on the battlefield has stalled out. In fact, I briefed you on that about two weeks ago about how Kiev's top general admitted his country has some pretty profound struggles. And those include that Russia holds some very important strategic advantages that will likely lead to their victory. In other words, ladies and gentlemen, it may be that Secretary Austin's very subtle change about future support is just the beginning of a new pivot to a new time where perhaps the United States provides some support some of the time, but not for however long it takes. One final related note to this. As the U.S. is wavering, as it were, on providing additional aid to Kiev, some nations in Europe are starting to realize that they're going to have to step up into this void. Indeed, three days ago, the Wall Street Journal reported that European nations are starting to see the writing on the wall, that America is slowly and almost certainly pulling its support from Ukraine. So some European nations are now starting to step up their support, promising to give Ukraine more aid, but only until next year's presidential election in the United States. And that is because they think that Putin might be willing to sue for peace depending on if Trump or Biden wins the presidency, assuming, of course, that both of those men get their respective nominations. So let's see if this subtly new language from the Pentagon is truly the beginning of a very slow pivot with the Europeans picking up the slack. In other words, let's see if this subtle change means less of your taxpayer dollars getting sent abroad. With that, ladies and gentlemen, we conclude this morning's episode of The Right Report. But I've got one more thing before I let you go. We'll be right back. Welcome back to The Right Report with one more thing before I let you go. It is a listener question this morning sent to us from one of my paid subscribers at rightreport.substack.com. Tracy in Stockton, California wrote in. She wants to know a couple things. First, whether I will support Donald Trump uh, during the election that's coming up. And second, if so, how could I possibly defend what he said on Saturday? Well, as Tracy said, Mr. Trump was in Iowa on Saturday where he said that he would take back Bagram Airfield. That, of course, is in Kabul, Afghanistan. And he's going to get it back as part of a trade deal that he said that he would sign with the Taliban. Now, for what it's worth, the reason that he said that he would do this was because it's a great airfield that he could use to keep an eye on China. And as he said, they've got a bunch of nuclear weapons. Yes, those are about 400 miles away from Bagram, give or take. So, Tracy, I appreciate the questions this morning, and let's tackle that first part. So, regrettably, I'm just not going to share who I will or will not vote for next year because I'll tell you, there are a lot of folks in the podcast world, the media world, who talk about this, and... I don't think that my voice or my vote really adds any value to you or this broader conversation that lots of folks are having. So that's that. Second, let's talk about this prospective Trump deal with the Taliban to, you know, get back Bagram. And I'll say this, this is a tough one 
for me and a lot of people because we lost friends or they lost their arms and legs in Afghanistan. So it's it's a bit tough to think about dealing with the Taliban or the Haqqanis, which we discussed yesterday, in any kind of deal. And I suspect that this feeling is similar to what Vietnam veterans felt when America started to warm our relationship with Hanoi. It just hurts because like the Vietnam veterans, we'll probably ask, well, what was the point of that war? Still, let me put aside my personal feelings and let's look at this strategically because Trump is. And let's ask ourselves, would Bagram be helpful to have if the Taliban or Islamic radicals weren't trying to kill us all the time? Well, maybe. Trump is right to say that operationally, we could probably use it to keep closer tabs on the Chinese, for example, or Iran. Or there's this nightmare scenario called loose nukes. Right? Pakistan, uh, the neighboring country, of course, has a bunch of nuclear weapons. And it's possible, the fear is, that an Islamic radical could get a hold of one. So, yes, we could use Bagram for all sorts of intel operations. And I'm sure that the U.S. military has some very creative tools and teams that they, too, might use if they had some real estate in that area. But let's ask, what would we have to give the Taliban in return? What does that trade deal look like? Well, it's that, that, that is not clear this morning. We certainly uh, have a lot of their cash held up in some of our banks. Possibly we could give them technical expertise uh, to tap into some of their mineral wealth or their oil reserves, especially up north towards Tajikistan and Uzbekistan. And yet, my concern is this. I am pretty tired of foreign adventures. And I am tired of the U.S. government and our elites in Washington, D.C., spending trillions of dollars that we do not have and sending young people off to die in these far-flung missions that eventually will lead to mission creep and even greater risk and death. So I just don't know if I frankly want to trust my government again to get this base and expand our footprint. I, I just don't want to see any more of my friends end up dead or mangled because some American elites, no matter what they feel or think otherwise, well, they ultimately start treating Afghanistan or Bagram like it's some sort of game of risk. With that, ladies and gentlemen, we conclude your morning brief. As always, I will see you tomorrow, God willing. Until then, I leave you with the creed of every good spy and every wise American. They're the words from the Gospel of John, chapter 8, verse 32. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Good day.